0: Welcome to Australian Women Preach, a podcast that aims to raise women's voices in preaching the gospel. Our intention is to model the church we want to be, inclusive, diverse and welcoming. Brought to you by WATAC, Women and the Australian Church and The Grail in Australia.
1: Josephine Pin, an Anglican priest, serving as Minister of Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney, former General Secretary of the New South Wales Ecumenical Council, and also a transgender woman. And I'm reflecting on the Gospel for Trinity Sunday, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now, when my wife was ordained deacon in the Anglican Church, she was heavily pregnant with our twin daughters, I am a holy trinity, she famously declared in a subsequent homily. Of course, this was partly a joke, not a serious attempt to restate classical doctrine. But she was making vital points about the need to locate the great ecumenical doctrine of the holy trinity in life and experience, as well as in prayer and intellectual rigor. We would certainly not want to over-exalt a female pregnant trinity, especially when its members are manifestly not equal or reciprocal. However, my wife had a case, I think, in drawing attention to deep aspects of mutuality, indwelling and love. Not least, she was highlighting how God as Holy Trinity is profoundly relational and embodied, For whilst God in essence is transcendent, God's energies are found dynamically in all aspects of our lives and world. So in this sense, God in Holy Trinity is not only found in our variegated gendered experiences, God as Holy Trinity is always pregnant with possibilities of which we can but yet hardly dream. So as today's gospel highlights, This isn't only a declaration of profound loving mutuality. It's an invitation to travel on to further transformation in the presence of a mystery which calls us into deeper being and becoming. In She Who Is, a substantial work connecting both feminist and classical wisdom, Elizabeth Johnson helpfully highlighted how God is what she called the creative relational power of being who enlivens suffers with and enfolds the universe as a transgender woman i resonate with that it speaks into and out of my own experience of god as holy trinity it grounds my experience in its pain and joy in deeper mystery and calls me on to fresh experience and new ways of embodying that love in communion with others. It doesn't deny the mind and classical understanding, but it opens up kaleidoscopic vistas of how and where that love is to be found and embodied. And this rightly understood is what I think Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is proclaiming. It's not an end in a way to the gospel, but the invitation to an ever renewing beginning. Now, I have to admit that I've often tried to avoid this gospel's finale. At first sight, it can seem a little tidy, over declaratory and less textured than the rest of Matthew's narrative. The risen Jesus sometimes appears as a magisterial figure concerned with proclamations, even imposing them with directive authority. And missing is the figure of more humble holiness inviting participation through parables and walking with the poor and outcast. And the so-called Great Commission, to quote, make disciples of all nations, similarly emphasizes, often it seems, evangelism rather than encounter. And it has been much overemphasized, of course, with destructive colonialist impacts on many cultures. Meanwhile, the wording of the passage, and not least the threefold designation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, seems to reflect later developed formulations of the church rather than perhaps the life of Jesus himself and the immediate post resurrection experience of the disciples. Now, all of that could appear to jar with the creative relational understanding of God derived from personal, intimate experience of mutuality pregnant possibility and transforming new life. And it does seem a little far from the messy, but deeply mysterious encounters of the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection earlier. So could we see in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the beginnings of a a much more institutional, even patriarchal form of church? After all, only the 11 disciples are mentioned here, presumed all male. Well, yes, possibly there are potential signs, but such interpretation would hide the much more striking features of dynamism and provisionality, which are vibrantly present. For far from simply closing the gospel, faith development and the shape of the emerging church, Matthew offers us encouragement to continue the transformative journey to which they witness. And three particular features of this gospel story are worth pondering in relation to the church that we might become. Firstly, the passage highlights the incompleteness of the church. That there are only 11 disciples mentioned is surely the significant point rather than their gender. Ecclesiology matters, but Matthew is not leaving us with a blueprint. Like other aspects of Christian life, Ecclesial development will always be a work in progress. Now, as a church history lecturer, I've often found that students are first shocked and then enlivened by the patterns of growth over the centuries, realizing that there was never and will never be any perfect ecclesial structure. Rather, as Catholic theologians have long emphasized, the idea of development is core to ecclesiology and theology. And so in this, as the ending of Matthew's gospel indicates, we're always to return to the person and work of Christ. So secondly, this passage highlights faith experience. For if the shape of community in the church is always to be a work in progress, so too is mission. Both must be continually focused on Christ in the diverse experiences of our world. And so very significant is the mountain setting here. Matthew's Christ is surely not asking followers merely to share dogmatic propositions or fix rituals. Rather, the gospel's climax encourages us to go back and remember the earlier mountains in the narrative, namely the teaching of the law of love by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and the vision of and encouragement to spiritual journeying on the Mount of Transfiguration. And similarly, the call to baptise in the name of Father, Son and Holy Spirit arises from the life of faith in which such formulations arose to give expression to a much deeper and wider series of experiences and transfigurations. So like our ecclesiology, our mission and our worship therefore need to be grounded on this early experience, but also continually refreshed by renewing our understanding of faith. So thirdly, this passage highlights openness to the future. Both church and mission are to be dynamic. If we're to go into the world as Matthew's Christ commands, it is also to learn and grow. Contextual mission and enculturation have always enriched us. And similarly, our teaching must involve learning from the experience and engagement with others and others experience and engagement with God in their own lives. The so-called Great Commission consequently involves two poles, doesn't it? That of witness and hospitality. We are indeed to share our own experience of God, creating, relating and enlivening in us and in the wider body of which we are a part. But as we move among other nations, that's other types of people, we're also to learn. As this passage shows from the outset, faith, experience, and response to circumstances shape the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, baptism, worship, and the church more broadly. So we are commanded to continue this reflection, handing on Andrew Newell. The book, at least Matthew's book, is not at an end. Rather, his Christ calls us to write the new chapter with appropriate new words, shapes, and images. Women's experiences and insights in their kaleidoscopic variety must certainly be significant features of this. So for me, what the doctrine of the Holy Trinity points to is profound, ever-renewing mystery grounded in life and experience. And like my wife, I can witness to this in my own embodiment. Indeed, I strongly identify with the reality of the Holy Trinity as a transgender female. For like the feminist theology of Elizabeth Johnson, My embodied wisdom does not dispense with classical wisdom, but rather enriches it. Augustine of Hippo offered us an enduring psychological analogy of Trinity as memory, understanding, and will. And I would deepen that into a more physical analogy. For I've experienced God in Holy Trinity as firstly, deep self, much more profound than human labeling of parts and persons, as a mystery found in prayer and revelation. And then secondly, as embodied self, as a living icon born out of the pains and joys of coming into being an expression. And then thirdly, as purposeful self, having calling and capability and a power exhibited in gifts and fruits. And so for me, like the Virgin Mary, my wife, and all who've given birth to their holy indwelling potentiality, The Trinity is thus proclaimed in me also as a powerful word, namely, let it be, being and becoming a message of Matthew's Christ for today. Amen.
0: You have been listening to Australian Women Preach, brought to you by WATAC, Women and the Australian Church, and The Grail in Australia. You can find out more about WATAC at watac.net.au and The Grail at grailaustralia.org.au. The music in this podcast is from the song Truth from the album Into Silence by songwriter, musician, theologian and teacher, Danielle Ann Lynch. You can hear the full version on Spotify.